It's time for the Podcateer Podcast. Good morning, Christopher Robin. Oh, good morning, Winnie the Pooh. Oh, well, glad to meet you. Name's Tigger. T-I-double-G-er. That's spelled Tigger. Now, isn't this a clever disguise? It's the Podcateer Podcast with your host, Mark Tanner. Take it away, Mark. This could be about anything. And if you're like me, you wait and see. For I've got curiosity. Hello, Podcuteers, and welcome to the D23 Expo edition of the Podcuteer Podcast. I'm having a wonderful time out here. Uh, we've had a ton of celebrities. Uh, here we had Angelina Jolie, Kristen Bell, uh, Christina Hendricks, Natalie Portman, who is a favorite of mine, uh, Ty Burrell, Tom Hiddleston, Chris Evans, Anthony Hopkins, that was a, a real big one for me, uh, Sebastian Stan, uh, John Laster, of course, uh, Adina Menzel, Josh Gad, Bernie Mattinson, who's a 60-year animator at the Disney Animation Studio, uh, Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee, who uh, were the directors of Frozen, uh, Dan Scanlon, uh, director of Monsters University, Kenneth Branagh, who's an actor, of course, and uh, directing Cinderella, Brian Howard, who is directing Zootopia, and, of course, Pete Doctor. Uh, I, there were a few celebrities that everybody was hoping for. Everybody was hoping to see Tom Hanks. And there had been a rumor rotating around the internet that Harrison Ford might be there for some kind of Star Wars announcement. But those two things didn't come to pass. But we certainly got to see our share of celebrities here at the, the Expo. I uh, saw uh, Ridley Scott Pearson, the author of The Kingdom Keepers. Got to see him. He was actually being interviewed by, uh, I always forget his name, Lou Mangiello. For some reason, I always want to call him Leo. Uh, Lou Mangiello from uh, WDW Radio. He was uh, doing his podcast from out there at the expo all three days. He was being sponsored by Mouse Fan Travel. Did a nice booth. They had a big cruise ship built out of balloons, which must have taken, being someone who makes balloon animals, that must have taken a lot of work to put that thing together. Well, on uh, the D23 Expo Edition here, I've got uh, some snippets. I didn't get the whole thing of the working with Walt with uh, Existentio, uh, Alice Davis, Bob Gurr, and Marty Scalar. It was great seeing the four of them on stage. And uh, then I uh, had the Leading a Legacy, which was with uh, Bob Gurr and Bruce Vaughn. Kind of funny seeing both the uh, the old and the uh, new side of Imaginary. Not that Mark Scully was old, of course. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. It, I've had a great time here at the Expo. 
they still didn't have really enough uh, vendors. But when you're charging $1,200 a booth for the vendors, you're not going to get a lot of the smaller guys. Had uh, uh, Gary and Gary. It's uh, Gary's Collectibles, it's called. A couple of friends of mine who I've known for many, many years. They had a booth. A lot of great stuff. Nice stuff. Big booth. And, uh, I, let's see, I got the uh, Leaving a Legacy. Uh, I got some uh, music from Vibration, which is the acapella group that used to sing out at California Adventure there by the, what used to be the train, which is now the Starbucks. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it, there's, there's a lot of good stuff here on today's show. Hope you enjoy it. Got a little uh, piano music uh, from the fellow that did the piano music for Carthay Circle. And let's see what else. I, I, I just got a ton of stuff here. So, hope you enjoy the show. And uh, next up, I'm going to give you the audio from the Leading a Legacy with uh, Marty Scalar and uh, Bruce Vaughn. So hope you enjoy that, and after that, it's kind of lengthy. It's almost an hour. This is going to be a long show. There's just a ton of expo stuff, and I'm going to give it all to you in one big chunk. So hope you enjoy it. So, like I said, Marty Scalar, Bruce Vaughn, leading a legacy. Here we go. Imagineering can do for its own legacy is exceeded. The world set a standard early on with the Imagineers. 
There was a standard that enabled people to come in expecting something and then giving them something even beyond that. So they left thinking, how did Disney do that? And now, stage 23, as part of our celebration of 60 years of Walt Disney Imagineering, is pleased to present Leading a Legacy. Please welcome current Walt Disney Imagineering Chief Creative Executive, Bruce Vaughn, and Disney legend and former Walt Disney Imagineering Principal Creative Executive, Marty Sklar. The documentary is exciting, huh? Yeah, Tom Stagg's got the ball that out the other day to the Sorcerer's Club, I think. And we've been working on it, it's gonna keep going. <laughs> you know, what is the first thing you think about when you think about that? Besides Walt, I think it's the people. Yeah. Because the talent that's been an Imagineering is incredible over, yeah. over the years and continues. And it's such a, you know, has the reputation of being elite in this business and, and should have that reputation based on what uh, has been accomplished all these years, but it's the, the passion and, yeah. and the heart of, of all the people like you've been meeting here this weekend. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things we've talked about in, recently in your book, which thank you for writing and sharing uh, that knowledge and passing on. Um, yes, <laughs> but it really came out uh, of the diversity of talent, and that Walt wasn't afraid of difficult personalities, that they had the right talent to contribute. And really, that's part of, I think, leading Imagineering, is you really have to know how to get those people to be motivated to work together. Well, I think that's, uh, you and I have talked about this, as a big part of your job is being a casting director, yep. putting the right people together. And Walt was amazing at, at that. I don't want to tell the story. I love these two people very much. Mark Davis and the wonderful sketches he did for all the pirates and Haunted Mansion and Small World and Jungle Cruise, et cetera, et cetera. And Claude Coates, who was easily, easily the best layout. He, he came out of background in animation and he was easily the best background person. He laid out the Pirates of the Caribbean, laid out the Haunted Mansion, and so many other things. And uh, these guys, they would not be caught dead going to lunch together. <laughs> really, and, and not, that's not a negative. It's just they were very different personalities, mm -hmm. and they had different friends and, and different interests, but Walt somehow knew how to put people like that together and you rub them together and something better than, certainly better than one person and often better than two plus two, you know, it's amazing. And I think I see that all the time too and we uh, really try to build our teams with that unexpected diversity I think and, and it's always a combination of uh, what we I tech, you know, typically refer to as technical, although our technical people are so creative that it's unfair to, to just categorize them that way with our classic designers and creative people. And I remember on, I don't know if you guys remember Lucky the Dinosaur, which used to be around here, Lucky was great. So Lucky was a prototype audio animatronic that we were pushing ourselves to free the robots from the, from the show floor, get them out into the parks to roam around. So we had to change everything. 
uh, all the skin uh, go electric. And uh, the most difficult part was the neck and trying to get this neck to be able to be fluid and look organic and not shake or jitter and hold the head at the end. And we had a, uh, Akil Manhani is a PhD, incredibly talented um, engineer. And, uh, but we combined him with uh, Brian Tai, who really comes up from, his father was a sculptor and he doesn't have any technical learning or PhD and it took both of them to figure this out. We sort of had a competition to see who would get the best neck and uh, Brian, because he wasn't studied and in, in, didn't even know at that time uh, how to build models and computers and things, sort of went and tinkered and came up with this unbelievable linkage system that was really, I think, harkens back to the great, you know, Yale Gracie and those kind of people. And it, by far is the best way, but uh, Akil came in, but Brian couldn't have made it actually function in the park. It took Akil's math to, on top of that to come in and, and go in and, and uh, actually make that model function. But it was really a great moment to see how they, they come together and work off of each other. You know, I'm actually jealous of something that I have to tell you, Bruce. <laughs> and that is, you know, back in the early 60s, I, I wrote a line that Walt liked about Imagineering. It was that Imagineering is a blending of creative imagination with technical know-how. And the reason I'm jealous is you have so much technical stuff to be at your disposal yes. today <laughs> yeah. that we didn't have five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's true. It's true. We're getting, and I think the fact that people know about Imagineering and the product is out there in are parts of you, they grow up dreaming about this and studying the right things so that they can apply that. And work is so different than I think when you first started, I imagine it was invented. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it wasn't even a place. What was that like for the, the earliest imagine? Well, Walt used to say about Yale Gracie, he did all the special effects in the Haunted Mansion and the Pirates. He, he'd say, Yeah, you know, if I didn't employ you, you'd be home tinkering in your garage. <laughs> and I think that's true. He, he was a tinkerer, and uh, tinkering is part of what they did. And I still remember a meeting that we had, it was a Yale Gracie and Teehee. I never knew the origin of T's name, but it, it was Thornton was his first name, and he, H-E-E. Uh, I don't know where he got any of that. Anyway, he was a great cartoonist in the animation business. And uh, he, he and Yale were working on something they called Planet Moon. It was an electronic shooting gallery that was set out in outer space, and they had crazy things like you, if you hit one of the characters in the, in the belly button, it, his head would open up and the ball would come out and they called it screwball. Okay. Uh, but there were dozens of these things. And Walt came in one day, spent an hour, didn't say one word. I'm not kidding, not one word. None of us had ever seen anything as wild and fun as this. And finally when he was ready to go, he just turned it. Uh, to Yale and Teehee, and he said, is that all they do? <laughs> and you know, we knew exactly what he meant. He said, keep going, <laughs> it's, so, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's a big piece of the, uh, the role too, is, is that kind of motivation. And, because it is, you know, imaginators don't come to work. They, they come and, and what they do uh, for the parks and what they do every day is what they wouldn't be doing otherwise, just it wouldn't be Disney. But by far, Disney is the best place to do it because there's, uh, to be surrounded by people 
who have the same passion, the same level of passion that uh, Old Imagineers has. It's just amazing. And I think everybody's in awe of each other, I'm imagining. That's something that I think that place really breathes. And uh, it's, it's interesting. And uh, I got, you know, I, I lucked out because I got to watch Marty for years. I've been with Imagineering 20 years and doing this role for six. So I had 14 he years. Got, he gets to correct everything I screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great to have a, you know, a role model. I mean, what about for you? Well, you know, Dick Irvine was a, a different, he was a, actually, the, Richard Irvine was actually the first uh, person Walt hired to uh, work on Disneyland after Harper Goff had done some of those early sketches. Uh, and uh, Dick was, uh, uh, was an art director from 20th Century Fox, and he came in and a lot of the early Imagineers except for the ones that came out of the studio, like John Hench and, and uh, Mark Davis and Clark Coates, etc. Uh, they were art directors from the motion picture business. And Dick brought a lot of those people in. Bill Martin, who was one of the key designers, Fantasyland and, and Frontierland, and the Magic Kingdom. Bill was very important in the Magic Kingdom in Florida. So uh, it, uh, for me, it was a learning curve working with those people and see how uh, they work. But, you know, I was always the kid because, I mean, many of them had come out of the studio. John Hench, who was really my greatest mentor, uh, had started in 1939 at the studio on Fantasia. And uh, so he had a long history, uh, long before I started working with him. I remember John telling me the story about one day Walt came by his office and looked over his shoulder and John suddenly, he was working on uh, on uh, Peter Pan, which is the last one uh, I think he and Claude Coates and some of the others had worked on before they came to Imagineering. And uh, all of a sudden, John was aware of Walt looking over his shoulder. And Walt, again, he didn't say anything, but he went to, toward the door and as he, got to the door, he says, oh, by the way, John, I want you to work on my Disneyland project. And he said, and you're going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, John did. You know, John worked till he was 94 years old and 60-some uh, years in the company. So there was that kind of level of uh, experience and passion and the people that I learned for Harper Goff and, and uh, Blaine Gibson and Fred Jerger and Harriet Burns and gee, they were. You know the thing that that really struck me, and it still does. And, and I want to get to something that you're doing. They were teachers, and they had no hesitation to give you whatever information you wanted to know to, to help you. Uh, if you had a question, you wanted to learn more. It was it was like a PhD program every day you know, with these people, because they were so good. And now you have a class at UCLA, which you teach, yeah. you have for many yeah. years, right? Yes, 10 years now. I'm going to 11th year. It's uh, the uh, Imagineering, the Art Process of Entertainment Design, and it really came out of uh, the dean at the time, Bob Rosen, was a friend of mine, and uh, he, uh, we went to the park together, and he said, my God, you know, this, why aren't we teaching a class on this? Because it really is a mashup of all the different art forms, that, uh, you know, the storytelling art forms, 
whether it be theater, gaming, by the way, you know, it's a big piece of gaming because everybody is sort of an autonomous character moving through the parks. <laughs> we don't know which way you're going to turn. We try to lead you, you know, with little gateways and things and icons and weenies. Um, and uh, film, you know, all those uh, vernaculars are there. And I remember with you and, and John Hinch really getting a deeper understanding of um, how there are long shots and dissolves in the park and all these transitions are so important. So we did, we put together a, uh, we've done it now for like 11 years, uh, uh, two quarters, and we go through the entire process of how an idea goes right up to feasibility. This is the phase where we're about to go build it, uh, really understand it. Um, and the, uh, we do a lecture, first of all, and really go through that whole process. It's not just me, but Joe Brody, Kathy Mang, and Walden come down and do lectures and talk about their projects. And then the second part, we actually put people in mini imaginary teams. So we have down to 30 people and 30 students and these teams of uh, five teams of six and they get a project. It's not a Disney project. I found that that was sort of, everybody's got their Disney idea and uh, what, we, what we want to do is apply the process. And that's what's amazing about, to me, Imagineering is this process can be applied to anything. It is a, it's, it's kind of the best kept secret about how we do our things. It's just the, 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 the freedom of thought and how you begin to move from no idea is a bad idea to the best idea uh, in this very, very uh, elegant system that allows the best idea to surface and, and allows it to breathe. And by the time you're done, you have this great idea. In fact, there's a funny story that Bob Iger told. We had um, years ago we had Michelle Obama visit Imagineering, and uh, at the time the uh, oil well was leaking uh, off of the coast, and she just turned to Bob and you know, after she got done touring Imagineering, and she said, Bob. Can't these Imagineers just cap that well? <laughs> and Bob said, and he's like, what? And she said, you guys can do anything. <laughs> and it's kind of true. Yeah. But you know, that, that, it's kind of interesting that we were talking earlier, and uh, um, as the creative head of Imagineering, you can imagine the numbers of letters and, and uh, from parents and kids that we get. Uh, and uh, how do you answer some of these questions? Because it's all about, I want to be an Imagineer, how do I do it? Yeah, yeah I always, I, and I really firmly believe this, uh, my answer is, you, you know, you don't study a particular thing, you just follow your passion, because that is one thing that every Imagineer has in common, is they're there doing what they're passionate about. And whatever that passion, and by the way, we have, you know, we always say 140 disciplines, I think we say that because we really don't know how many, there's at least 140 different disciplines. <laughs> To, to, in order to uh, you know, bring these parts Nobody really counts, though. No one counts, we try not. But it's insane how many di different opportunities there are. And, and actually, sometimes people bring things that we don't even think of. Uh, that, you know, and and you know, we've got Joel Torme, who's a, the master of rock work creator in the world. And this guy did Cars Land, and Tree of Life, and, and Everest, and, and the things we see. Um, and uh, yeah, that wasn't something he, he was a sculptor. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, who knew that, that that would be a career path through engineering. So it really is just, you know, bring your passion and, and do what you love. Don't try to get pushed off into uh, what you think people want you to do. It's, you know, follow your heart. I always said, uh, in writing back to, to kids particularly, I always said, learn as much as you can about as many things as you can. And when you're young, Try different things because I know we all think we know where we're going at some point when we're young, but we really don't. And if the right opportunity comes along or if we get exposed to something different, 
it changes your whole attitude about a particular occupation or a particular opportunity. So really, you know, young people should try different things and find out what you really are good at, what you really like. And you know, it's I had a, an expression I used all the time that uh, if you're not having fun in the fun business, find something else to do with your life. Because yeah. why would you want to be in this business if you weren't going to enjoy it and have fun? And creating fun has to be fun too. I mean, it's hard work, and you have to be passionate about it. But it's got to be fun too. And if it isn't, then you've got to find something else to do. And I think a key thing too is knowing what you where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are because it's a very collaborative process. You've got to recognize who are maybe the people that you should work with to complete the team. And uh, I had a great experience when I first started. I was a writer under Tom Fitzgerald, um, working with uh, another writer, Dave Fisher, on a little movie for the Land Pavilion, the Circle of Life movie, and uh, the Lion King wasn't even out yet, and we had a script from Jeffrey Katzenberg, and we said, you know, this movie, you know, it's going to be okay, but... Uh, and uh, we said, you know, use these characters because it is a this environmental tale. And uh, uh, we, so Dave and I were writing this story, and we were we thought, you know, this is the best thing ever. Our jokes were as funny as they could be, and we're cracking and beating ourselves up. And, and then Tom says, we're going to bring in Irene Becky, who's a great writer from Future Animation, to punch it up. I said, what? <laughs> what, do you, what is she going to do? And so here comes this writer, and she goes away for two weeks, and all of a sudden they're going, okay, you know, why did, you know what, our script is perfect. She comes back. And it was so much better. The dialogue and everything was so much funnier. It, was just, it made more sense. And I really was sort of, I was humbled by that because, uh, and I said to her, I said, I have to apologize. I was really, you know, hating that you had this opportunity. But now I see. And she said, look, what you and Dave did was build the skeleton of the story. She said, I can't do that. I'm only good after the skeleton's there. And then I can put me on it and dialogue and things like that. So that's, you know, you really can understand your different talents and bring that to the table. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Tell us about how you deal with uh, peer reviews, uh, Imagineers reviewing other Imagineers' projects. Yeah, this is something that we've struggled with, but it is something that uh, Ed Catmull and John Lasseter, very early on uh, when Pixar joined the Disney family, we, you know, they, they live by this. They, they say that the success of their product in their movies is so much about the fact that they have this uh, brain trust of talented directors and writers, and they review the movies throughout the process, and they, they don't pull any punches. It's a difficult process because when you're creating, it's part of you. Uh, earlier, I think Eric Jacobson said it's like children. It really does feel like these are children, and then people are going to come in and basically tell you your child is ugly. <laughs> um, but you have to because you're actually all in it for the right thing. And what they do is these note sessions, and now we're doing this at Imagineering as well, which they're non-mandatory notes. So the team doesn't have to take them. They just have to listen. And the team can't be defensive. They can't say no, but this is the listen. And and a smart team will hear the notes and know which ones are good and, and which ones aren't. The difference between our product and, and Pixar, though, is that you know an animated movie is always the same pattern. The story is different, characters are different, but you're really going through a pipeline that's very regular and predictable. We do everything from churro carts to giant mountains, the lands, and it's, and we have so many things going on at once. We're building all over the world right now cruise ships, um, and, uh, and we design every bit of these things, from show lighting to, you know, the more obvious things like the sets. So how do you pull all that through? So we've been, but we've been doing it. We have a, a really healthy culture now where teams are, you know, really raising their hands and, and they understand that the notes aren't personal. 
They're not directed at the person, they're directed at the project, and that we all have this in common, which is we all want the best experience for the guests. And you get there through a collective uh, uh, thought and creativity, not an individual. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest numbers. A lot of people think being a creative executive at Imagineering is your ideas that get done. None of my ideas get done. I don't come up with the ideas there anymore. I used to be on those kind of teams. Now you sort of go around and, and it's almost like you're going through the kitchen and different chefs are making things and you're tasting and saying, I need some little spice or a little too much of that and you just keep moving around. I mean, do you find the same experience? Yeah, well, you know, I always remembered that what John Hench taught me very early on, that is that uh, he's, he put it this way, it's not an I business, it's a we business. And he says, and when you open a new project, you can't really tell that what you did, you basically know, but so many hands have touched it and hopefully made it better, that it's not what you started out with, more than likely. It's been modified, it's been built, uh, built up, and uh, it's, it's a, sometimes, for some people, it's a hard thing to accept. We've had some real talented people, I won't mention any names, but they're really good, who just, they wanted their name in lights. And in, in our business, there's one name on the door. Fortunately, it's a pretty good name, Walt Disney. You know, pretty good name. And not a bad brand, and people know what it is. And, uh, but, there, but there are a lot of people who want to be more like in the movie business, where they get their name in lights, and everybody panders to them, etc. Uh, that's not the that's not the theme park business. It's not certainly not the Imaginarium business. And you have to accept that. And you have to have that kind of a tough skin. That for, sometimes it's hard to accept, you know, because you want to. You have a certain ego. We all have a certain ego, but you have to sublimate it to uh, the the larger goal, which is what Bruce said of uh, the product. It's so much better as a result of all this mix. Rolly Crump used to call it a big salad, you know, and you throw so many different people into the salad, and they all uh, they all contribute something a little bit different. Finally, the taste adds up to something yeah. that you want to really sample. It does make it difficult to explain to your family what it is you do, though. I had a, a great moment uh, a number of years ago when we finished the. Fantasy cruise ship. Has anybody been on the cruise ships? They're beautiful, and everyone uh, on the team did an amazing job. And yeah, we visited off into Germany, and I was on there for about seven weeks finishing up everything because again, we do all the live entertainment as well as the you know restaurants and the shows and the restaurants, everything. So you have to be on the ship, and and uh, I brought uh, for part of that time I brought uh, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my niece, and had the extended family. And so they're on the ship for a week and. <laughs> seeing the shows, going to the dinners, doing everything. And, and it was the last day that my dad, and now, by the way, I've been doing, I've been with the company about 18 years at this time, or 17 years or something. And my dad said, you know, your mother and I were talking. We think we know what you do now. <laughs> I said, well, tell me what they were doing <laughs> But it is, it's a very interesting kind of way to, you really are part of a bigger whole. Okay. Well, what is it that you do? You know, Marty, it's a tough one. <laughs> I think, you know, the, at the end of the day, uh, it is about casting, motivating, and, and in that motivation there is, uh, you are really helping birth the best ideas, which means you have to gently get people to understand when they have the wrong idea. And 
Uh, I learned that from you and from uh, Tom Fitzgerald, I think is a master at this. Uh, you guys have a way, and I, I try to do it myself, uh, of going to go in the room and, and basically, uh, you know, you're, you leave the room and your idea has been, it's gone, but you still feel really good. It's like, you leave there going, oh, I'm, I'm just to go redo this whole project, and you realize as you walk down the hall, like, nothing of my idea is left. You're going in a whole different direction, but you're excited to go do it. And it's a, there's a bit of an art form there, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, in a way, it's like somebody has said, well, I'm hurting cats, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, I always felt like if I'd been in a good cat fight, it was a good meeting. Mm -hmm. Because if you can get people to speak up and really say what they think and not sit back and worry about the feelings of other people in the room, that's not, not easy, especially for, for new people who are not, uh, they haven't developed a thick skin yet. And uh, it's, it's a difficult situation sometimes. But uh, I always thought, you know, when we had a, have a saying in imaginary, no idea is a bad idea. Well, you and I know that's not true. <laughs> I mean, I've heard so many bad ideas over time. <laughs> uh, but if, you, if, if somebody says something to me and you know it's a stupid idea, you, you don't say that joke. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Because you'll never hear from that person again. Right? And I can't tell you how many times the next day somebody would be in my office door and they'd say, you know that thing that Joe suggested? It wasn't right, but maybe if you, instead of X, Y, Z, if you did Z, Y, X, maybe there's a kernel of an idea there. Yeah. And that's the kind of open process you're struggling and continue to, to uh, foster because that's when you get the great ideas. When nobody's afraid to say what they have, what they think, when nobody's afraid to offer something that somebody else might think is dumb mm -hmm. because uh, you don't know. You don't know where, what is, uh, is going to hit, what is going to spark somebody else. Mm -hmm. And in a creative process, uh, you know, and that's, I think, the worst part about a lot of things I see. And, uh, and I see it at universities, for example, is these silos. Everybody works in silos, and they don't talk to each other. And there's not an interface between them. And I think that's, you don't get the best ideas that way, because you're working in an environment that's a closed environment. We want an open environment. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I think also you, you uh, part of our role is to make sure that we keep people that that might be considered a little crazy <laughs> around the office because these people do exactly that. And the biggest challenge is like you have like you can give me a list. <laughs> I'll give you a list. Um, but you, you have to have these people in the room because their ideas might be ideas you, you're never going to build because they're so out there. Uh, but they stretch everybody. Because just when the people think, oh, that's as far left of field we can go, this person says something, and you're going, wait a minute, that's, okay, that's, now it's out here, so then I can stretch into that space and do this. The big challenge is a lot of those people, their ideas won't get done, so you have to keep them motivated in other ways. Um, but uh, it's, to me, I think that's one of the most things about working at the place, too, is, is putting together these, these various personalities and throwing them in a room, like you said, and just watching what comes out. It's, and it's extraordinary. I love the... You know, every day we walk around and we get to review new ideas and ideas underway, and it's, it's never 
never boring. I can tell you this right now. It's always fun. You know, Alice Davis said something this morning that I really sparked to because it was my own experience. And that is that Walt was never interested in what he did yesterday. He was only interested in what, not only what he was doing, but what you were going to do next because he was trying to stretch all of us. Yeah. And if you can keep stretching your people to say, that's a great attraction we did. But, you know, now we've learned yep. that. We've learned some new things out of that. What's the next one? How can we jump to another standard, another level? And in, I think right now in the, uh, in the theme park business, with other people being more aggressive about it, you have an even bigger challenge because there's other great stories out there that Disney isn't doing. Uh, and, and, and those are being done by a lot of ex-imaginarial, by the way. <laughs> almost every company has, uh, we've trained so many people in, that are out and, and doing projects all over the world. Uh, and so that, that's a challenge continually. But if your people accept the fact that you expect them to grow, you expect them to go beyond where they were the last time, that's a wonderful way of, of living your life, you know? If somebody said, I always felt that what Walt said uh, to us that what we did yesterday was never gonna be good enough again. We had to grow, we had to, we had to be better, we had to learn more, you know, things like, uh, I talk about John Hanchella. When John went to him uh, about uh, a couple of things. One was uh, when they were working on Fantasia, John said he thought the male dancers were very feminine. And Walt said to him, do you know? How do you know that? And John said, well, I really don't know. It's just my impression. And so Walt arranged for John to spend two weeks backstage with the Solid York Ballet Company. And John came back, he says, those are the greatest athletes I've ever been around. And it was, they were such great, um, they, they were just very, uh, really super specimens in what they did. And not a feminine at, at all, he had a whole different impression. And it was the same thing when uh, uh, he, Walt said, I want you to design the Plaza Inn, the new Plaza Inn at Disneyland, and John said, I have no idea about anything in the restaurant business. So Walt said, well, don't look at me, you find out. <laughs> and so John took a course in restaurant management at UCLA, and he came back, and from then on, he was the expert because he could go into any kitchen, and he knew exactly what should have been there. He knew what the, what the chef should have been asking for, etc. So it, it was a growth experience on a continual basis. And uh, that continuing education is really, really important as part of what you do. Yeah, and I think that's uh, one of our challenges is uh, one of the great things, one of the strengths of Imagineering is that uh, Imagineers stay forever. <laughs> they just don't leave because there's so much passion and they get better and better. And it's great to have um, deeply experienced people around. But you have to also, at the same time, find opportunities for the, the newer generation to get in there. So it's really coming in this balancing act and making sure you're setting up the right mentorships and getting people out there. Fortunately, we do have so much going on and so many different scales of projects that we're able to 
find these little opportunities to grow people through the system. But it is a it's a kind of an interesting thing if you're if you're in the middle of it all. It's it's uh, you know it's if you're down in the as a, a new Imagineer looking up and saying well you know what am I going to be able to be a Joe Brody or a Tom Stroll or, or a Kathy Mangum and, and it's really figuring out you know how are we going to put someone's career through this because it is a studio. It's a very unique studio. It's not a place that people just come and leave. We have a culture. Actually, I think it's more it's a better way to put it. It truly is a, a deep culture. Well, speaking of cultures, you know when you do work all over the world. Uh, you have a, you have to think about where the product is going to mm -hmm. go, and even though it's all Disney product, it, there are levels of knowledge that, that uh, different uh, people have around the world. What are you doing? Uh, uh, how, what kind of approach are you taking in Shanghai with the knowledge that people have? Yeah, well, we uh, Shanghai is a very exciting project right now. It's our next Castle Park. Um, and it's going to be extraordinary. Uh, being led currently by uh, Bob Weiss, who's a very experienced um, uh, imaginary creative executive, uh, and Howard Brown is the project manager. They're a really wonderful team. But it is China. Now, we have the advantage that we learned a lot from Hong Kong. So we got the park in Hong Kong, and we've been expanding that. And things like in China, with the one child law, it's actually what I call the inverted triangle because there's one kid. A set of parents, aunts and uncles, and grandparents. So you've got more adults than kids in a, in a Disney theme park. And you really have to change things. And we didn't uh, think about that in the first round of Hong Kong. So uh, we had, and also they culturally, they don't, they're not, uh, roller coasters and things are out in the open, uh, more like a Six Flags park or something like this. They don't hide their show and, and, and coasters and things like we do. So Space Mountain was suffering because. You know, grand grandmas would get on this thing thinking it was a planetarium show <laughs> and come out the other end <laughs> a little disoriented to say the least. <laughs> and if you go around China, they have big video monitors that shows what's inside the, uh, the attraction. We're not going to do that because we're immersed in the story, so we come up with other ways. And, and we allow, when we did Grizzly Gulch, which was an expansion uh, for that park, Jill and Sister and the team, we have uh, show elements inside the mountain. It's a runaway train, kind of like Big Thunder. But there's bears very much in a Mark Davis style, and that's really cute and fun. But a lot of the roller coaster weaves through the land so that anybody going through there can go, oh, that's what that is. And there's a lot of opportunities too. We, we allow the guests to actually walk through the path of the, the train in this, in this frontier land kind of setting, which allows the, those who don't want to ride, mostly the, the, the grandparents, to watch because they can see it going through. And so you get these different things. And they're also we're camping out at our tables, you know, in the dining rooms because. Uh, uh, Again, the grandparents wouldn't want to go on all the attractions, but they'll sit there with their backpacks and things while the family goes out and comes back. That's not really great when you want to have more people come in and eat. And so now we're designing spaces. Uh, beautiful, the hub in Shanghai is going to be a beautiful park kind of setting uh, that is very magical. There's lots of things that I can't talk about right now, but it's going to be amazing. But, um, but a lot of places that would be very nice to sort of sit and rest. And, and we're thinking about the entire park that way. We're also doing what we did, uh, I think, really well with the Alani project, too. We've got a lot of new engineers over there that are Chinese. Uh, because uh, you know, our job is to teach them what Disney means, but we need uh, them to, to really help us interpret those distinctly Chinese moments and where that balance is going to come through. Um, so it, it's, it's, I mean, Alani was really funny because, you know, that one, um, was, it's, yeah, Bob Iger said, you know, big H, small D there. It's gonna, we don't want to just put a Disney attraction on Hawaii. We want to tell the Hawaiian story. And Joe Rohde is absolutely phenomenal. And, 
and he you know, brought in these Hawaiian advisors. But one of the more difficult meetings I had, and this is one of our jobs, is um, you, know, you can imagine when Disney names something, there's a big marketing group and Imagineers who, who come up with the names for all this stuff. And it's, you know, we think about everything because it's going to be marketed this way. But in Hawaii, you know, Joe was telling us, oh no, this is a sacred spot. You know, this, is, this is a whole thing. And what you do is you get a, a, a Hawaiian dreamer to dream the name. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, yes, this man's going to go to sleep, and he's going to wake up in the morning, and he's going to tell us the name of our resort. <laughs> so, so the first few names, <laughs> we couldn't pronounce, so you know, he went to bed and woke up, and I would take these up to, at the time of Jeremy's alone, and I said, so, you know, here's a name, and they're like, mm, we can't do that name, because I can't tell you what they were, but they, they didn't sound very nice. So in Hawaiian, they probably sounded fine, but to us, they conjured up other images. So we're like, okay, that's not going to work. And, they, and we made it, like, well, what do we do? And, you know, go back to sleep and when you can <laughs> So while Lonnie is actually done by this master who is a, you know, he's a name dreamer and, uh, and that's how we have our name. But that's the kind of company which I loved. I didn't get a corporate attitude. What I got was, you know, a lot of puzzled looks at first and said, oh, no, that's, we're in this. We're going to design this thing. We're going to, that's the culture we're going to be telling stories to and we have to respect that. And as long as we can keep you know, having him go to bed and come up with a new name, it's fine by us. Yeah. <laughs> I think he was around 15 names we went through. <laughs> names are amazing things, too, as, yeah. as part of the whole uh, uh, development of something. I remember when uh, Michael Eisner first came into the company in 1984, and we pulled out everything we were working on to show him Frank Wells. And uh, the first thing he lit on to do was uh, something that Tony Baxter had called zippity doodad run. And uh, it was just at that time Disney had just released Splash as a movie. And very quickly that, uh, that attraction became known as Splash Mountain. <laughs> For two reasons. One, he said, we're gonna promote the movie and the, and the theme park attraction the same time, and two, we're going to continue the, uh, the tradition that you've established for mountain names. Mm -hmm. And so you look at the, the, the names of most of our thrill attractions, it's got Space Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain and Railroad and you know, Splash Mountain, and it's, it's a Disney tradition. Yeah. And, it, and you know, it, it helps right away to say something about what we're doing because yeah. people know right now. Yeah, and I think you've a very good point how important how you talk about the product and, and, and how you refer to it. You know, it's just, we don't make rides, we make attractions, and actually when you think about what Imaginary designs, we don't even, we don't think of it as designing places or attractions or shows, we think of it as designing experiences. So we think about everything, the food and you know, the bathrooms, everything is thought about and designed uh, every inch of those places. In fact, you know, Animal Kingdom, um, most people think that, oh, we probably worked with the landscape there, and you know, we flattened that place first, <laughs> completely flat, and then built the hills where we wanted them, and put the trees where we wanted them, and everything. So it's really phenomenal. You, you, know, I was just in, you saw a little clip there, and the, the Irish thing of the Shanghai uh, site, and I was like, Marty, this is, for me, in this role, this is my first, what you call, greenfield uh, of a full park. So this is, you know, you level the ground, and you emerge, and I, uh, last year when I went over there, we were just beginning to sort of
clear the ground, and you do about a year of plumbing, basically. You have to get all the stuff underground before you can come up. And I stood where the, uh, I remember that great photo of you in, in Florida, where you're standing, and I, yeah. the same thing with Howard Brown and, and Bob Weiss and Tom Stack. You stood with the X where the castle's going to be, and I, I, I think I almost fainted. Because I thought, how are we going to do this? <laughs> There's a lot to do. It's like, it was great when it was drawings in a model, but now we have to build it. It's very exciting. Though. Yeah, you, you look around at it. I remember Paris. It was so cold the first time I saw that site. It was just just a beet field. And I said, "Oh my God, what are we doing here?" <laughs> I go into Paris where it's warm. <laughs> but Bruce, I think you ought to uh, get a, a, a salary increase because I noticed in the video and this you have the same shirt on. I do. <laughs> You know, continuity, I'm all about continuity. You go to Tom Staggs and say, I've got to get a second shirt. Right at Transparent Party Room. So you know what, I think we ought to throw this open yeah. to you guys and questions. see what uh, kind of questions that you might have. So if we could have the lights up and... There's some microphones, if you just step up to the microphone if you want to ask a question. Somebody. Um, I know, sir, you have written a book, but have you written a book? I have not. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Uh, Don't hold that against him. <laughs> okay. He seems like a nice guy. Oh, yeah. It took me 50 years. <laughs> I remember Marty during the process of writing this. He didn't look happy a lot of times. It was a lot of work. But no, you know what? Boiling your uh, college program down. Mm. We've talked a lot about uh, moving it out. And UCLA is very interested in moving it out online. Um, so we're going to maybe talk about that. Yes, over here. Yeah, that's good. Um, paraphrasing, um, I think I read somewhere um, that the mission statement of Disney, the organization, is um, to create memories. Um, to create memories in a safe environment. It's gone through many iterations, but. I just wanted to express just how many memories I've had um, growing up about 40 minutes north of here. We didn't have a whole lot of money, and this is the one place we came to every year that my dad was able to save enough to take us, mm -hmm. the kids, and my mom. And then probably around 14, we finally got to go to Epcot. But as cast members, you must have some amazing memories just from your entire career. Could you maybe express one or two of them? Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's so much. I, I, I told the story this morning about the first time that I had to make a presentation of Wall. Uh, I was 21 years old and never worked professionally and was scared as hell. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, that's, that's as big a memory as any because I always, and I said this this morning too, that, that uh, that was the turning point in my career. I was either out the door before my career ever started, or I, he liked it, and as he did, and it was a stepping stone, became a stepping stone. So, I mean, that's a pretty basic thing to think about it when I think back on 50-some years of doing this. Yeah, I think for me, it's, um, first of all, there's nothing like finishing something and watching the guest reaction, it really becomes into focus when you see it. You know, you, you, you actually cry. I mean, you sit there and you tear up because it's such a wonderful moment. But I do have a memory that 
we were working on World of Color, which we're very excited about. So you people, I hope, hope you like World of Color. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was not, it was not an inexpensive attraction. So we had a lot of stuff, but we were really you know, inventing the instrument, writing the first piece of music, and learning to play it all at the same time. Steve Davidson is amazing, but we were down there with Chris Montan, who's head of our music group. And uh, we were down there at 3 a.m. after the park hours, and it was very early on. And we had uh, re-worked uh, with the London Symphony and redone all the classic songs that are in there now, in their, in their original form now. But we'd done them in different ways, Spanish guitar for Little Mermaid and things. So we thought, you know what, our guests hear these songs so much, we should mix it up. Um, and uh, there's these fountains going off and lasers and fire and watching it, and it was, the emotion wasn't there. And Chris and I were leaving that night going, all right, we'll keep working. We've got about two months. And Chris, you know, he said what I was thinking. I didn't want to say out loud. He said, what if fountains are just boring? <laughs> and I said, don't say that. It was like $100 million in that water right there. We cannot have fountains be boring. But it was actually a note from Tom Fitzgerald who uh, he, we sent him down. We are sending everybody to sort of peer review. And he said, you know, I love... Uh, part of my world so much, but I didn't recognize it until it was deep. It wasn't the, the same notes, and we're like, oh my god. So Chris immediately went down and we dropped in Steve Davis. He's great, by the way. He's, he takes notes well, and he's a great critic. He dropped in the music, so all the tempo was the same. Instantly. And it just shows you how much you're wired to these, these moments in this music and the songs. Instantly, we're laughing, we're crying, and the whole show was like, oh, thank god. There's little things like that that you just, you just never know. You walk away, and, and whenever I see that show, I think of that moment where Fountains are not boring, thank God. <laughs> well, this is one of my uh, uh, passions about the Disney parks. I think there should be more music, more songs. And uh, if you think about all your memories of Disney and the films, what do you, what's the first thing you think about? I mean, it's a song. That, you know, that's what you remember of every, almost every one of the films. First thing that comes to mind, someday my prince will, um, you know, uh, Mulan, every, everything. Just think of every, every Pocahontas, and, I mean, on and on and on. And uh, Alan Menken, if any of you heard him last time. Wow. But that's the emotion, you know, and it sticks with us, and I think we should do more of it in the, the parks using. You, you heard X's. This morning, yo ho, yo ho! Wow, remember that's what you, the pirates. That's the pirates. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we're glad, you know, when Pixar first came on board. Uh, you know, Pixar doesn't do musicals, and we said to John Lasseter, you know, you got, got to give us some more musicals because, I, and by the way, I've seen Frozen. <laughs> so, <laughs> did they play the song? You guys hear? Wow, it's you, it's it's it's, it's, it's going to be great. So yeah, that is deeply part of our culture. It's great. Over here. Uh, so Imagineering has like led a great legacy, and it's the best of what they do. Um, but for the first time in a long time, Universal Creative is getting noticed. How do you guys intend to fight back? Yeah, Universal. We we that Harry Potter thing. <laughs> Transforming. <laughs> you know, um, first of all. Uh, it helps everybody when the industry actually raises the bar, and uh, it also keeps us on our toes. At the end of the day, you know, I feel very strongly that there's so much more to what makes a Disney uh, park and resort so you know great. It's, it's 
it's the service, it's the cast. We have so many great stories. I mean, I Star Wars changed my life. I'm so glad we have this now. We have stories coming out. Um, we're beginning to figure out Marvel and how we can bring that in. Uh, you know, Avatar is phenomenal. And and all the new feature animation and, and uh, Disney products, more pirate movies. You know, so it's to me. I just feel like you know, bring it on. <laughs> We're gonna, we're ready, and uh, no one can touch us. Not only that, yeah, but it's, it, 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 it says something to you right away because it's a great story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a great story. So that's what we try to begin with is to right. develop a great story first, and then there's lots of ways to tell a story and lots of new technologies that you can bring into it. But if you don't have that basic great story, you're behind the eight ball right from the beginning. Right. And they don't have an Imagineering, so. <laughs> uh, Imagineering has such a treasure trove of classic attractions and attractions that are no longer with us, like uh, Avengers Trainer Space, uh, Horizons, and Journey into Imagination, which has been highlighted uh, <laughs> quite a bit this weekend. Yeah. Does Imagineering ever look at ways, besides merchandise, to allow guests and fans to relive classic attractions, be it the dish technology, showcase downstairs, or, or anything else? It's an interesting idea. You know, it, there is, a, it's, a, it's a, such a, that's another big piece of this role. And, uh, and, uh, and I, you know, again, learned so much from Marty on this, that, you know, our parks are not museums. Uh, we've got to stay relevant and keep things going, but we also understand the deep nostalgia. And in your book, it really opened my eyes to how much Walt had a love of the nostalgic as a way to sort of introduce the future. And we've got to constantly be diligent about that. We know if we move a park bench, that probably was a bunch where someone proposed to someone or has some amazing memory and we've ruined their life and we get rid of them and their anniversaries are over and divorced and you know, whatever. So we, we're very careful with this kind of stuff when we do this. Um, and we do, actually all this does come from the guests. You know, when we see, the, we, we, we analyze ourselves constantly. When we see guest satisfaction scores drop to a certain point and stay there, we know we have to do something to refresh things. But, you know, I, 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 there are so many technologies and ways, it'd be very interesting to think about how we could bring those back virtually or something. It's interesting. You know, I think a really good example uh, uh, is the Tiki Room. Mm. Now, you take the Tiki Room, it's a 50-year-old show. 50 years, and so much of it is exactly the same as it was when we started. But if you go in the room behind it, there was actually uh, a room that had all the uh, technical stuff that made the show run that was bigger than the room you sat in, you stood in today. Today you can do the same thing off my iPod. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So uh, it, it shows you that there's so many new ways that, that you can create these things, but the story has to has to endure. And when you build something in the park, it's not like a movie. If the movie fails, with the exception of Newsies, <laughs> if the movie fails, you'll never hear about it again. It'll be gone in two weeks. But our, you build something with steel and concrete, and you can't hide it. It's there. It's going to be there for a long time. is a great example, too, because in Florida, you may remember, we introduced Zazu and Iago for one. And I remember the pitch that Kevin Rafferty, was a master, did. It was great. The pitch was awesome. I mean, I, you, know, you build that thing. It was so funny. And then we got in there, and I remember I was down there once after it all got in. Very difficult to make those characters and everything. And literally behind me, this woman sits down with a kid, and she's all excited because she had one of those memories. 
and the show starts, and the kid starts crying, and they leave, you know, it's like everybody's upset. But it, we, we went back, you know, we went back to the old show. So there's times where you just have to, you know, you try something. The nice thing is, you know, we can always bring things in, we can always put it back. <laughs> it's expensive. Thank you. First off, I want to second uh, what he said there. I'd love to have a chance to buy some of those old tracks on DVD or Blu-ray. That'd be awesome. That's an interesting idea. I'm going to think about that. Uh, the question I had, uh, I can't imagine, Marty, you having too many bad ideas. But can you share with us maybe uh, an idea that you had or a project that never came to fruition that you can share with us? No. <laughs> I'm crying. You asked. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. With uh, rides like Mystic Manor versus uh, rides like uh, Star Tours, where they're based on movies, mm -hmm. or a ride that's based around the theme, what do you prefer more, doing something like the Haunted Mansion, where it's based on a theme, or doing something based on a movie? Yeah. So I think there needs to be balance because, on one hand, uh, we talk about this a lot. Uh, on one hand, the, these, if the movies are successful, great stories and great characters. We know our guests and we want to go there. So we want to deliver on what those movies do. And, and when those movies resonate, you know, this is your opportunity to go to, like in Star Tours, to expand beyond the edges of the film, you know, go to places that aren't even in the film and, and see, see it differently. Um, but that said, uh, we also are very adamant to make sure that um, we give birth to our own ideas and lands too, and, and it's recognized in the company. I mean, Pirates was not a movie idea first. You know, it's uh, you know uh, it came out of the park and it inspired generations of filmmakers who later on said, "Wait a minute, I want it." Johnny Depp, you know, I want to play this character. I want to be in that. So we are going to continue to balance, and we have that in in China where we build everything. We continue to. In fact, um, two thirds of the expansion in Hong Kong were original ideas, you know, with Mystic and, and Grizzly. And, uh, and we're going to continue to do that around the world. I think the balance is really important. I think that's it. I'm getting the, we have to end. <laughs> Thank you all. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today in stage 23. Please gather your personal belongings and watch your step as you exit through the doors of the theater. Again. Thank you for attending today's presentation, and we hope that you enjoy the rest nice. of your stay yes. here at the D23 Expo. I guess the third Expo. time I've heard, heard or third or fourth with Marty Sklar, but he's so interesting, it doesn't matter, you know. Yep, you're right. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, it was just a little ditty there that I got off of YouTube. A uh, young lady playing When You Wish Upon a Star. Uh, all right, now next up, I've got, I don't have the whole thing, uh, but I've got a little bit of the panel with uh, Existentio. Uh, he's the one that uh, uh, did uh, Pirates, on the Car uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, it did the uh, music, and I think the script for it, as I recall. I didn't look it up, but I believe that's what uh, his tie to the Pirates of the Caribbean is. And uh, Alice Davis, of course, Mark Davis's wife, and uh, a, an Imagineer in her own right, uh, Marty Scalar, and Bob Gurr. So uh, next up, uh, the portion of that that I got. And I, I don't get all the way to the end. I, and I got a phone call, and I had to leave, and then it ended before I could get back in there. So... Uh, my apologies for not having the complete uh, panel, but uh, here's what I got. After 20-some years in animation, Walt brought you over to Imagineering, and, and it wasn't too long after that that he asked you to write a script for the Pirates. But my recollection is you'd never written a script before. Why did he have faith in you to be able to do that? It, it was amazing the way Walt was able uh, find the uh, talents that we had, that we didn't know we had. And uh, for instance, when I moved over from animation and uh, into imaginary, and I wrote a format for the first time, and uh, I knew this was fun. I like it. And uh, the more I got into it, the more I liked it because it wound up being that I get a direct uh, up, uh, command performance the man himself. He's called me up to him. He was up to say, I want you to do the script for the Pirates of the Caribbean. And so I what I could, and I learned to say, that's how the old pirates say. And uh, you're to blame for the fact that we all do that. I, Flying 
before he, George was our musical director, George Bruns. George Bruns wrote uh, Davy Crockett. Uh, Davy Crockett, yeah. So uh, he did the, uh, the melody of a Soho song in it. And uh, it was a, an adventure to, to do this script uh, and the song. Remember it because you know that he's remembering it. 
Um, and uh, so there's this ongoing continuity all the time. And I noticed a lot of people caught on to the fact that um, Walt remembered almost everything he ever heard. Because sometimes um, somebody would say something, and then a month uh, later they'd say something else, and then Walt would look and he says, well, that's not what you told me last time. <laughs> so this is sort of a warning thing. It's a, you better pay attention. Uh, because uh, you keep your story straight. Well, guess what? This means your, your creative antenna's up, and you learn uh, don't ever lie. Don't ever make up a story, because he's going to catch you later at this thing. So you got to understand, it was like the fact that it's almost like management by walking around, and he would, uh, as much as he could, get out of his office and walk around that back lot all the time, talk to people. He didn't really um, uh, set an agenda for anything. He just would wander in. Everybody got used to that's the fact that the way it went. But it, it did something extra. Um, you, you lost this formality between what somebody would say, the boss Walt Disney and, and everybody who's working there. Everybody sort of became one. And I noticed that a little bit later on when Walt would deal with corporate uh, presidents and chairmen of the board of very large corporations when we were attempting to sell Epcot, that uh, a lot of people would reproach Walt as Walt Disney, the amazing god, and when they get too close, I even saw the uh, chairman of the board of Westinghouse, his lower lip started to quiver when he got too close to Walt. Right? This is amazing to watch, and then Walt would uh, loosen his tie and make himself look a little bit ratty so that you could actually talk to the guy. The brilliance was, how do you get people to work with you when you are at that kind of uh, beloved stature? He almost had to work at not being Walt Disney. So he could be in the team, working with everybody, and people would pick that up right away. I think even people that came into the company uh, kind of knew, they kind of picked up that vibrations after a while. And you would never, uh, you would never really be nervous in, in Walt's presence. And then the other little subtle thing he did, which, how many of you saw the uh, Mr. Banks clip yesterday? Yeah. All right, here's the test. As Ms. Travers walked into Walt's office and the secretary indicated that Walt would be out momentarily and she'd have to wait. Just at the moment of that scene, did you hear anything? Do it again, do it again. <laughs> the cough! That was, his, that was his very polite warning that he's coming down the hall. And I thought, that, that movie picked up part of the curtain. He would come down the hall, and you got your door open, and um, you know you might be not in the position you want to be in there. And, uh, <laughs> and there, there'd be this little. <coughs> that was one of your problems, but. <laughs> <laughs> and, but that was so polite, and it was a very subtle thing, and he, and I got the impression he did that deliberately, uh, knowing that he'd be close enough. To give you a little warning that he's about ready to pop in your door. So you have always had that five-second warning, and that movie picked that thing up so so quickly yesterday. So that was a sample of a way more. Yeah. Bob was. I have to add one thing to that. When they moved, they Bambi moved into the studio. Uh, they were the first ones to be there, and they were upstairs in Walt's office, and they were all, you know. Uh, working on Bambi, 
Walt would always come in and see what was going on, and sometimes he wouldn't. And you'd start hearing this voice, Mark said, man is in the forest, man is in the forest, man is in the forest. And it was Walt coming down the hall. Fred Jerker and all of them. That is 
so much talent in that group that you had an opportunity to you know, bond with and work with Mark doing the, 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 all the comic stuff and this business and Blaine doing the sculpting and a crew. Yeah, that's kind of interesting, but what if? 
this was a never-ending thing. There was never-ending things. Uh, and it was constantly urging you on, but never, never was a criticism thing. A few people got criticism if you're trying to get a little bit too much of their ego and they, they didn't get the picture that Walt was the, the main ego and the, and the whole book. That's okay, because he's always urging on in these ideas. Well, I always think of that. In fact, the first time I ever saw it written anywhere was in National Geographic, and the writer asked Walt what he did. He said, Dan, do you draw all the pictures? He said, no, I don't draw anymore. Do you write the scripts? No, I don't write any of the scripts. Do you do, what do you, well, what do you do, Mr. Dizzer? And he said, I think of myself as a little bee, and I go around and pollinate things that people are doing. And, and that was him, you know? That, that was he, he had all his creative talent, and as Alice said, he said he made it so clear to us that whatever we did yesterday was not going to be good enough the next time because he wasn't going to be there. He was going on, and it better be better because uh, he knew the public expected it. You guys expected to do one great attraction, and the next one has to be as great or greater. And uh, he, all that creative talent. Uh, we had a lot of freedom to develop our town because of working that way. May I, may I get in here? There's a young Mark was waiting for Walt. We, Mark and I were both waiting for Walt because he had something he wanted to set up, something we were working on. But this young man came up and he had this one lawn and he said to Walt, Walt, what do you think of this? And Walt looked at it, looked over at the young man. And and he smiled and he said, it's very difficult to choose between one. <laughs> he wanted more than one idea whenever he saw it. And that thing could come in with a stack of one. <laughs> Over here. Thank you, Marty. Uh, I would just like to call attention to the uh, dignitaries on the stage to this fact. It's uh, early morning Sunday and you packed the house. You bet. And I think that's indicative of how much we all love all of you on stage and Waltz and the joy you've brought into our lives. Uh, each of you had many, many wonderful experiences with Mr. Disney. If you could, each of you individually, just tell us what is that one poignant, heartfelt memory you have of Walt. If somebody says, for that day when you meet him in heaven, you get to say, there was that one moment uh, that you carry in your heart. What is it? Oh boy, any of you want to take a crack at that? <laughs> what always figured that you're with him on his ideas? It's like a railroad track. You better be on a parallel railroad track with him. A very simple thing, which I caught on to almost immediately, when we got about 30 seconds of dead time, how many guys will act like a used car salesman and they say, did you hear the one about? You know, everybody's going to tell a story. If you did that in front of Walt, within two or three seconds, that eyebrow started a very slow rise. What that meant was, you just signaled to him, you are not thinking in your mind 100% on his project. Don't do that. I never got over that. You know, I, I, I'll answer it uh, this way. Uh, 
I, and I write about this in my book. So you guys have to buy my book. <laughs> We, we presented, we developed, uh, we did two presentations when Disney went to Florida for the first time, 1965. I wrote both of the presentations and it was, one script was the only one that I ever did that didn't go to Walt before he saw the finished product. And I don't know why my boss, Carl Walker, uh, who was later CEO of Disney, why he decided that it should done that way, but he did. So he invited Walt and 200 people to a stage to see this presentation we were, which we were going to do in Florida. And it was all about the ABCs of Disney. Uh, as, and it was really about Walt and his career and how great he was, etc. I mean, not those exact words. And uh, when it was over, he came up to me and he all he said to me was, I didn't, write, I didn't know anyone was writing my obituary. <laughs> and I went, <laughs> But the thing was, he was embarrassed. And because no one had told him, and he hadn't seen the script, even though I recorded about four minutes of, with him in it, uh, he didn't see the total script. I never made that mistake again, even when Mr. Walker if he ever suggested that I do something like that, I'd say, no, I'm, I'm not doing this again. Mm -hmm. I and mean, he didn't change anything. We, we, that's the presentation we made in Florida. I think that's enough. Thank we'll you. move on to over here, another question. I, I, I hope I'm asking the question right, but maybe you already answered it. Would Walt ever give up on somebody as long as they're trying would they, would he finally say, you know what, let's move on to somebody else? No, not actually. Um, let's say we build something at Disneyland, we think it's going to work, we get it down there, and, uh, and it doesn't work. It breaks or it just doesn't function right. He was not looking for to chop a head or anything or get rid of somebody. He just sort of said, well, okay, well, we'll just find a better way. And it was never done in anger, and it was never done in threat. And stop and think of that. If you did something wrong, you were the guy that made the machine and it was bad. Uh, you live in terror. But the minute Walt says, well, we'll find a better way, you go, am I going to go really fast and find that better way right now? He's getting you to contribute online. That's amazing. Bob designed the bobsleds for the Matterhorn, of course. And I remember the first time, still the steel structure was up there. Just the first time I think they uh, ran the vehicles around, and Walt came out and he said, well, who designed this this uh, Matterhorn? And Vic Green, an architect, raised his hand. He said, you get in there with the sandbags and let's see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have to place any blame if it didn't work, right? <laughs>
the young animators that he had to where they would be able to animate real people. And you would feel that they were real people, not a drawing of somebody. And it was for starting up a, a, a Snow White. And he didn't feel that his, his animators were trained enough. And he was going to different art schools, and it was during the Depression. And they said, there's a door. So he came to Mrs. Chenard, and Mrs. Chenard said, I admire what you're doing. Uh, you have made an art for the, the uh, United States. The United States never had an art that would be connected with the United States. It was always Chinese or the early Europeans or something else, but there was no real American art, but the animation was because of what he was doing with it. Again, my apologies for the panel kind of starting uh, it was a, just a few minutes into the presentation and uh, cutting off before it completely ended. But it, I really only lost about maybe two minutes before and two minutes after, so you got most of it. All right, next up, uh, just a little bit of me wandering around uh, at the end of the expo and uh, right when I left it. And uh, after that... I'm going to uh, play uh, kind of my thoughts about what uh, the expo was like uh, from my ride home in the car. Yeah, I like that because it's fresh. It's like immediately after I left it. So you really get uh, my uh, opinion of what I saw and uh, heard and so forth at the expo. So next up, those two things kind of back to back. A lot of people packing up. This guy's selling all those books for a buck. I mean, go back and check that out, see what he's got. All right, I got a maneuver here. I'll be back. Well, I have made my way out of the last day of the D23 Expo. I'm sitting just outside the doors, looking up at the uh, three-piece, uh, giant three-piece sign here. I'll put a photo of that uh, up with the podcast. Uh, it was a lot of fun for three days. I had a great day today, better than I expected. See, I got to see Marty Scalar twice and Bob Gurr. Uh, Existentio and uh, Alice Davis, who's Mark Davis's wife and uh, a Disney legend in her own right. Uh, Mark Davis was an animator, by the way, and it was uh, it was great. Listen to the stories about Walt, and, uh, about Imagineering, coming from Marty Scalar, and uh, I still don't know uh, Bruce's last name. But he's the head of uh, current creative director of Imagineering. But I'll have his name uh, when I wrap up the show. So I'm not going to give you the usual uh, wrap-up right now. I'll uh, do that from the home recording studio when I piece this whole thing together. So uh, I'll uh, let this be the last thing I give you a hear from the D23 Expo. Like I said, great day. Uh, lots of great costumes. Cool stuff. Bought some signage from Disneyland that I'm going to enjoy displaying. 
in my office. And uh, now I can start planning and looking forward to the next D23 Expo. Uh, undoubtedly in two years. So uh, with that, uh, like I say, I'm going to wrap up uh, our three-day trip to the D23 Expo and uh, on with the rest of the show. Hey, Podcuteers. I'm uh, in the mobile recording studio here on my way home. I just wanted to chime in here while I'm uh, fresh with the memories of the expo about what a great show it was. I have to give uh, big kudos to Disneyland, Disney. Uh, it was mostly Disneyland personnel that did it. Uh, all of the uh, guys in the red shirts, the expo staff there. Uh, although, that's the one little tiny gotcha that I, I have to give them. Is that they really need to, the day before the expo, they need to have everybody that's going to be here in and kind of give them a little bit of information. Because I, I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with the people. They all did their absolute best to make everybody happy. But they really didn't have a lot of the information that they needed to have. And it wasn't a big inconvenience, but they didn't really know where anything was. And when I would ask them, they'd have to pull out a map of the expo. It would have been helpful if they had given them a little bit of, little bit of a refresher course or whatever for the ones that were here last time, to, or just a course to the ones that were just the first time at the expo as to you know where things are in general and uh, when things start and who's in what and so forth because they, they, the ones in the red shirts were basically traffic cops you know don't go here go there instead but like I say they were extremely polite and they did their absolute best so even even them especially them I give kudos to uh, Anaheim Convention Center staff did a great job. Uh, some of the gentlemen in there, they hire ex-football players for the most part. These guys are big, big fellas. 
and uh, some of them have to learn how to smile. <laughs> that would be helpful. And they're a little more forceful than they need to be. Because most of the Disney crowds are cooperative. Uh, so I saw... Now, I think this is... Uh, because the crowd was extremely polite, and also because Disney had this set up right, I did not see one single incident of cutting in line. Not one. And that's not quite the case of the last expo. There was some cut in line at the last expo. Didn't see any of it this time. They Disney had it under control. Uh, the new queue setup that they had for the arena was really great. It worked just to a T. Last time they just had a rope line, you know, a snake snake-like rope line there. We just went back and forth. You know, you're used to them if you go to really any place nowadays. That's the way you set up a queue. Disney did something different. They did it something along the lines of the way the Pirates of the Caribbean and uh, Star Tours are set up where they have a line on, two lines on the ground with a number in the middle of the line. And they tell you to go stand on one, two, three, four, five. And they know how many people are supposed to be in each queue. They had this set up 65 people to a line. And they were watching it. Because while I was there, I had one of the, I heard one of the people uh, in the black jackets that were, well, this guy had a black jacket on. They were running the show and heard him coming in and talking to one of the, the red shirts and said, uh, you know, I just did a count on line number two, and there's 125 people in the line. There's supposed to be 65, so there were there were people grouping together and joining the line, but it really wasn't too bad. And I mean, I don't know about you, but if I'm in line and somebody's there, and and their two kids come and join them, or their wife or husband come and join them, or something like that, it doesn't bother me. You know, if I'm standing there, twelve people come and join them. Hey, you know, that's a that's a different story. And then you have the people that just come in there and strike up strike up a conversation with somebody at the front of the line, so they don't have to stand in line. That uh, sometimes I'll say something about that. But you know, this was especially Sunday. I was in the by far the longest line. Today, and because uh, I got here at 4:30 in the morning the other two days, and today I got here about eight, and it I was in line for probably 45 minutes or so before the before I made it inside the expo. But it wasn't bad. It was very well organized. Like I said, no cutting in line. Didn't see a single person cut. And it was worth it. Uh, there was definitely a much, much, much bigger crowd than the last Sunday Expo. I talked to a couple of the vendors there that I have, you know, over the course of three days, you get talking to people. And one of the vendors at, uh, so, uh, IB. C or IBG, something like that. 
they make antenna balls and uh, little antenna ball holders that go on your hat. And they're real cute. And I got uh, one of those courtesy of my daughter. And he was telling me that they actually did pretty well on Sunday. Now, for this type of show, that's unusual. Uh, you usually make, you know, if it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday show, you make 80 to 90% of your money on Saturday. Uh, most of the time, the Friday shows, you know, nobody gets off work until, you know, 4 or 5 o'clock. So you might do three hours of good business in the afternoon. The rest of the day is going to be mostly dead. Just people that happen to have the day off or work nights or whatever. And then Sunday, uh, it, it, one thing that Disney had going for it is that they sold the three-day tickets. So that's the reason I was there today because I had a three-day ticket. I didn't want to just throw away the money for the last day. And they had a couple things I wanted to see, and it, it proved to be a lot easier to get into than I expected. They did this much better than last time, again. The events in the Stage 22 and uh, 23 and 28 last Expo were a much smaller room, and they were hard to get into. Uh, I had no trouble whatsoever getting into the events with uh, Bob Gurr and... Uh, the event with Mar Bob Gurr, Marty Scalar, Alice Davis, and uh, Existentio, I had no trouble getting into that, even though I got there literally after it had started. It had started maybe five minutes before I got there, and I was able to wheel in there and get a really good spot in the center. I was in the back row, but I was in the center. And then I went to the last one, which was leading a legacy which is also today, and that was with Marty Scalar and uh, Bruce, whose name I still haven't picked up yet. I will, though. Uh, he's the uh, creative director at Imagineering. So they had the past and present creative directors at Imagineering, and they were telling all about what it's, you know, what it's like to run Imagineering and the different uh, struggles they've had and interesting things that have happened to them. It was, uh, it was very, very interesting. The earlier one, I think, was more, if you if you like the history of the park, I think the earlier one was a little better. Plus, Marty uh, repeated himself one of the stories he told earlier, he told again. Uh, but it was, it was excellent, though. Like I say, I can't say anymore what a great job Disney did organizing this thing. Very well done and uh, whoever set this up did it. If you happen to hear this, hey, kudos. Great job. Hope uh, they have you do it next year. And also, there was a very tall gentleman that ran the show last year. And he really did not have much of a Disney attitude. He had more of a military attitude. And the few times when I butted heads with him, it wasn't very 
like I say, it wasn't a really a Disney experience. Now, they had a gentleman uh, this weekend. Now, I saw him last time, but I think he had more of a role in what was going on today than he did at the last expo. Uh, he was wearing a cowboy hat or some, some kind of cowboyish looking hat. And he came out and he gave great information about, you know, what the line you were standing in, what it was there for, and what the chances are if you stood in that line that you would be able to get into anything else, and so forth. And that was great. I mean, and you, you knew where you stood, you knew what was going on. I mean, you can't possibly go to everything. It's just not going to happen. You can't make it out of one and into the next one. No matter what you do or how fast you run or anything else. Unless you happen to have somebody there with you that doesn't care about going to the thing you're going to and is willing to go stand in line for you. Now, the fellow I was with, the, here's, here's an idea for you for next time. A friend of mine went with me to this year's expo, and he had a really good idea that at the next expo, we're each going to chip in a hundred bucks, and we're going to pay somebody to come and stand in line all day for us. <laughs> then we can go to the arena shows and still get out of there and go see the other shows we want to go to. Because what I discovered was, is that if you give them your pass to the event, and uh, they take it to the stage pass place, which is, that's the way they did that. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But if you go to the stage pass desk, that you could get more than one, you could get more than just a pass for yourself. You could go up for the whole group that was with you. Now that being the case, you could have somebody do that and then you'd be set for the next event. You could walk right out of one and into the other. Now what they did was, over in the area of the queues for the arena, they had a, a long desk with a bunch of people working at it. And they had a queue set up, just the usual snake queue. And you would go up there, the fellow would ask you what it was you wanted to see. You'd tell them, and then they would uh, steer you to the uh, young person manning the number that they told you. There was a number over the top of each person. And you'd go to that number, and uh, they would give you a pass for the event you wanted to see. And they said if you lost your ticket, you couldn't get in to see it, although nobody ever asked me for my ticket. So I don't know how truthful that could be, because I never showed anybody my ticket. I just walked right in. But the room was far from full for the last thing. It was maybe two-thirds full. But there was a big crowd. I, there was a couple of thousand people in that room. It was huge.
So it was, uh, as I said, I, I cannot uh, speak highly enough of the job Disney did on this. It was great. I enjoyed it a thousand percent better than I did last time. Almost as good as I did the first time. This one, I think this one was a lot more organized than either one of them. What I liked the first time was the lack of the sorcerer's package, so you didn't have to uh, sit in a bad area. They fixed it, though. Disney listened. They sold too many sorcerer's package packages for the second expo. And what that meant was is that if you stood in line all that time, all it got you was a upper-level seat behind a speaker. And that made a lot of people, including me, really mad. Um, let's see, what else can I tell you? Oh, the Charter Member Lounge. If there was ever something that sounded a lot better than it is, <laughs> it's the Charter Member Lounge. It was a plain room with a couple of couches, a bunch of tables and chairs, some colored lights on the walls, and a couple of snack bars set up in there. And very, you know, there wasn't much at the snack bar, just a small snack bar. And that was the Charter Member Lounge. And I got a peek in the Sorcerer's Lounge, and it was much better. It was a lot bigger than the Charter Member Lounge, which since there's only 300 of them, I would imagine that uh, it didn't need to be that big. There were projected silhouettes of Mickey Mouse as a sorcerer on all the walls. Uh, as for and I, I could see that there was a, a snack bar in there also, but couldn't see really much of anything else. I wasn't allowed in there, of course, having not purchased a sorcerer's package. They didn't seem to get in that much earlier than the rest of us did, so I certainly can't see paying 1500 bucks for what you got. I understand they got in Thursday, but I talked to several of the vendors and they said there really wasn't much in there on Thursday. You know, some of the bigger places set up on Thursday because it took too long to set up to do in one day. But uh, for the most part, the vendors weren't there on Thursday. So I'm not sure what a benefit that was. It doesn't sound like much of one. Alrighty, well I just wanted to give you the lowdown on what I thought of the D23 Expo. And let's hope uh, in two years we'll be preparing for the 2014, or 2016, 15. <laughs> uh, hey, I just uh, spent three days uh, immersed in Disney, give me a break. So anyway, the 2015 Expo. Hopefully it's in California. They're doing one, I understand, in October in Tokyo, Japan.
but being as it will be in Japanese, that really wouldn't be good for me. So, I'm uh, gonna hand this off to uh, myself and the rest of the Podcateer podcast. See you in a bit. Well, that gives you just about everything. I do have one more little thing here. It's a performance by the group Vibration. Uh, anyone who's spent a lot of time in California Adventure over the last few years, uh, they're the a cappella group that used to play out in front of uh, where the train used to be there, the uh, entrance area to uh, the park uh, around where the old uh, fountain used to be there. It's uh, That whole area has changed. It's where Starbucks is now, and they used to perform right there. And they put on a real nice show. It's not very long. It's just a few songs. But it's pretty cool. So I'm going to play that for you. And then I'm going to wrap up the show. Now I'm going to have a little bit more uh, D23 stuff on next week's episode. Hopefully it's next week's. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, other than that, I'm uh, just out of just about out of D23 stuff. I it gave you just about everything. I have a, a nice D23 interview, kind of an interview. Uh, I struck up a little bit of a friendship by uh, with a fellow named Ken Scott uh, from uh, IGB Collectible Antenna Balls. And he was very interesting, well-spoken, uh, telling me all about his little business there. And uh, so I'm going to play play that for you next week so you get a little more d23 stuff next week so anyway uh here's uh, vibration thank you very much uh, I, I don't have to join you guys though. <laughs> horrible all right so like i said the best performances are right here on center stage we are lucky to have vibration here they got their start at disney california we have fans out there of course yes wow Anyway, uh, they got their start at, at Disney California Adventure 2001. We're there for three years. They've been in and around the Disneyland Resort. They are awesome. They're a six-part acapella group. Give a warm, warm center stage welcome to Vibration.
raised in Southern California? Yes, or anybody from out somewhere else in another state or something like that. Yeah, oh, both. You're from Southern California and from another state. <laughs> All right, I don't know how that quite works, but yeah, we're glad that you're here. Well, if you came from another state, chances are you either flew, took a train, or perhaps you drove out on Route 66. We're going to do a little jazz for you. Oh, 
sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee, in inches, in miles, in laughter, in
experience with us, Vibration. If you'd like to know more about us, we will be at vibration.com, or on Twitter, or on Facebook, or all the social media stuff. I'm sure you can find us. It's not that hard. Google. <laughs> We're going to leave you with one last tune to sing and dance into the streets of V23.
Alright, so that was uh, vibration. As I mentioned and you heard them say, uh, they used to play out at California Adventure. Usually right there in front of the uh, train, when the train used to be there. Well, Pocketeers, I hope you enjoyed today's show as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you. It took me a little while to edit. <laughs> I had all sorts of rambling going on while I was riding around the expo, but uh, I cut out all the all the serious rambling. <laughs> but it was a great, great time. I've enjoyed it every time I've gone. The second time, not quite as much as the first and the third. Getting rid of the extra uh, sorcerers packages, I think, was a really wise idea by Disney. Because the seating was so much better this time than it was the second time. The second time, like I, like I mentioned, we were stuck behind speakers, and it, it was terrible. But this time... We had excellent seating. You know, it wasn't as close as it could have been, but it was pretty well towards the center and not so far back that you couldn't tell, you know, who people were and so forth. So I hope you enjoyed the show and uh, hope you all have a magical, mystical Disney tour. <laughs> and uh, as always, I uh, will see you at the park. I'll be back on day shift soon, so I can actually go to the park. That's been terrible. Been on nights, haven't been able to go. So anyway, y'all take care of yourselves. Ta-ta for now. Podcateer is in no way associated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its affiliates. Any similarity to living persons or Disney characters without satirical purpose or the act of reviewing a product, or reporting on an event, is entirely coincidental. This podcast is a production of Toys Etc. in Southern California, and is protected by a Creative Commons, share alike 3.0 license. To contact us at Podcateer, please email us at podcateer at earthlink.net. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disneyland has now concluded its normal operating day. Yeah, folks, and me and my pals hope you had a swell time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mickey? Uh-huh? It's that time. Uh, what time is that, Minnie? Oh, <laughs> Goofy? Huh? Oh. Now, now it's time, time to say goodnight to all our company. M-I-C See you real soon It's always Mickey Mouse K-E-Y Why? Because, because we, we like you, you. M-O-U-S-E For your shopping convenience, this evening Main Street will remain open for an additional half hour.